I want to speak this morning on God's love. And I want to use the example that was given to us in Matthew about the alabaster jar. But before we get to that point, I want to talk a little bit more about... What are you doing to me, Riley? Are you pointing to me? Oh, she's... You're going like this, thinking, what are you, is there something, am I missing something? I don't know what's going on. Oh, okay. I just didn't know. I'm used to getting signals from that side of the, my wife has normally given me the signals, but you, not you, but you were going like that. And I'm thinking, what is he talking about? <laughs> oh, that was too good. Okay, let me get back on track. I'm, <laughs> Have you ever sat and really tried to comprehend God's love? I mean, have you really just tried to sit down sometime and try to understand what God's love is? I tried to this week, and I tried to put words to it. I tried to figure out what can we say about God's love that would even begin to comprehend and grasp it. I mean, we can say that it's all-encompassing. We can say that it's all compassionate. We can say that it's all surrounding. It's all engrossing. It is just, it includes everything. And I don't know one thing that we could even begin to mention that is not included in God's love. The word says God is love. That's what he is. He's love. And how do we, how can we even begin to comprehend that? Have you ever tried? Can you give me some other suggestions? Any other words you think of that can try to, try to capture what God's love is for us? Like a good back scratch. God's love. It's just, I mean, it's, God's love will leave you never wanting if you can really grasp God's love. It's just so absolutely amazing. And then for me, when I have a hard time grasping and comprehending what God's love is, then I try to say, well, God, how do I show you my love in return? If your love is so awesome to me, there must be some type of a reaction. I must have somehow that I can figure out then to show my love back to you. I just can't stand here and do nothing. I mean, I just can't. I mean, if God's love is so awesome, if it's so empowering, if it, if it just covers all of my needs, all of my wants, if it's, if, if, if it's so unmerited and so undeserving and so totally consuming, then my spirit has to rise up within me with some type of extravagant response over and over again. I just can't even begin to see what that transaction's like. We talked a little bit in Sunday school today about, about Dick was talking about how things communicate back and forth. Well, God's love is communicated back and forth. When I feel God's love, when I feel his mercy, when I feel his grace, when I feel his forgiveness, when I feel his unmerited favor to me, there is something within me that has to rise up and say, thank you, Jesus. I can't sit here and really embrace God's love without some type of a response back. Can you? I mean, can you really? Now, I know right now maybe it's easy to. <laughs> but, but when you really, when that revelation hits, when the revelation comes of what God's love is, it, no man can sit and not do something. No man can comprehend the full nature and the full blast of God's love. That's like being behind a 747 at takeoff. 
that all four engines are blasting and the air is blowing back and it's hot and it's blowing back at hundreds of miles an hour. There's no man that could stand up under that blast. And that doesn't even begin to comprehend the awesomeness of God's love. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I mean, when that revelation hits... It'll blow you away. When that revelation sits, you better get off the road. You better stop your car because you're going to start weeping. You're going to start crying. You, you just no way can mankind appreciate and absorb God's full love. It is awesome. It is absolutely awesome. Thank you, Jesus. And we have an example given to us back in Matthew chapter 26 that I want to read to you. You can read with me as we put it up on the board. You can turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, of the love that was expressed by a woman that in John, she's identified as Mary. In the accounts of Matthew and Luke, it's just identified as a woman. But this is how this woman grasped Jesus' love for her. And this was before Jesus even died for her. This is before Jesus even really did that much of a miracle for her. She just had extravagant love, and she had to show Jesus her love. And this is how she did it. Let's read. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now there's a whole lot to talk about in this passage right here. But one of the things that comes to my mind right away is that this action that Mary did, or this woman did, caused a lot of discussion with those in the room, and even the disciples. Jesus' closest followers. And it seems a little strange to see the, the disciples' reaction to this. Now, I can understand outsiders. I can understand those in that room that really didn't know Jesus. I can understand them having some serious issues with this perceived waste of this very expensive nard or perfume that could have been sold for a lot of money. If you research this, this perfume cost 300 denarii, which basically is, you get a denarii per day of switch, it's basically a year's wages. It's like taking how much money you make in a year, whatever that amount it is to you, and taking it and dumping it out. It's like taking all the money that you made in a whole year, it's a lot of money, and just taking it and dumping it on the head of Jesus. And on his feet. And in the book of John, it also says it. Then she, she washed his feet with her hair. I mean, Mary was all out here. Mary left nothing back. Mary joyfully and willingly gave of what she had to Jesus. 
been a sacrifice of worship and praise. But yet people saw this and they said, wow, what a waste. This money could have been used for so many better things. It could have been used to feed the poor, Jesus. Look at all those poor people outside and and you're letting her dump this on you? Wow. See, and for the disciples' perspective, it seems so uncharacteristic that they would think that because, see, these men have been with Jesus more than any other people. And they've seen Jesus perform miracle after miracle. They've seen him forgive people of their sins and set them free. They've seen people, they've seen Jesus uh, free people from demons that were demon-possessed, that were trying to destroy them, and Jesus set them free. They saw Jesus raise people from the dead. In fact, just a little bit of time before this, he raised Lazarus from the dead, which could have been Mary's brother. And so they saw that. And, and saw a couple of them even were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw Jesus speak to Moses and Elijah. So they saw Jesus do some pretty amazing things. There was no question in their mind that Jesus was the Son of God. But yet, they were indignant. Verse 8 says, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. And a few things come to mind as to why maybe they were so upset that might help us today in our life as we look at this passage. You see, they might have felt a little bit shown up by this woman. See, maybe they knew that Jesus was really worth that, and they weren't doing it. And so here comes this woman, not a disciple, not an appointed follower of Christ. See, Jesus appointed the disciples. He came and picked them. He handpicked them. They were important people. But here comes this woman. And she does this amazing, extravagant act of love. And she takes a year's worth of wages and dumps it out on Jesus. And these men aren't getting it. They're indignant because maybe they felt guilty because I should have been doing that. I should be doing that. And this woman comes in and does this and takes my place and pride rises up in their life. And they say, no, because it's pride that rises up in their life. And so many times we come to a point where God is moving and pride rises up in our life and stops it. Maybe they felt a little too comfortable maybe in the midst of Jesus. Maybe they got a little too comfortable in their position with him. Maybe they've been in the church all their life, and they get too comfortable in the setting of worship, and it comes too complacent to them. And then the awesomeness of God fades away. The awesomeness of who this Jesus is fades away, and they don't get it when somebody else does. When the revelation comes to somebody else, they're often some other world, thinking about how important I am to this organization, how important I am to Jesus. And here this lady comes in, broken, humble of heart, and says, Father, Jesus, I give you my all. And the disciples were indignant. I guess that continues to show me that these men were human. And like me, they don't always see what God sees in certain situations. 
And at least it tells me I'm not the first one to miss when God moves. I'm not the first one. They've already missed it. And it reminds me that I always need to be teachable for the moment. I always need to be able to discern what's happening. And when I see pride, when I see arrogance, when I see complacency rising up in my life because somebody else catches the moment, I need to let my pride, my arrogance, and my complacency go. And I need to jump in with her. See, in this case, the disciples were not catching what this humble woman saw. And it should have been in their spirit and not in their criticism. It should have had a spirit of worship and not a spirit of criticism because somebody else caught it. Because this little lady caught it, and she brought everything she had, and she gave it to Jesus, and yet they criticized her. Jesus rebuked them. And he said, aware of this, Jesus said, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. How do you think that made them feel? How do you think they felt at that point? Do you think they got mad at God, at Jesus, I'm sorry? Do you think they got mad at him and say, who are you to tell me, Jesus? I hope not. I think they felt a little foolish, maybe. I think they felt a little bit sheepish. I think they felt like, wow, I really missed it here. But it did not ruin their relationship with Jesus. Let me give you some encouragement. It did not ruin their relationship. Besides, it did for Judas. It ruined Judas's relationship because it was the straw that broke Judas's back. Because Judas wasn't really a disciple after all. Judas was handpicked by Jesus. But Judas was never part of the group. He never really got it. He never really understood who this Jesus was and what his purpose was. And Judas never really entered into what was happening in the life of Christ. He was the money man. He was the accountant of the group. And he really did think money was more important than Jesus. Immediately, go to the next verse, verses 14 through 16 of that same chapter, 26 in Matthew. And it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted him out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas didn't get it at all. Never did. But for the rest of them, Jesus' love was still real and, re- and still true. They recovered from that situation, and they went on to change the world. That, those 11 men in that room went on then to be the world changers of the world as we know it today. So God's grace is amazing, isn't it? Jesus did not throw the men out when they didn't get it. That gives me a lot of encouragement me to me because he's not throwing me out either when I don't get it. That's an amazing principle right there that he doesn't just throw me out. I deserve to be thrown out, but he doesn't. It's all recoverable 
if we're teachable and willing to let God change and mold my life. See, the disciples were molded there. They were changed there. The, the disciples did not live, they did not keep a rebellious spirit. They might have had a little rebellion rise up right then and there. But believe me, they, I'm sure, had opportunity to speak with Jesus after the fact. And I'm sure they all went to him and said, I'm sorry, Jesus. I'm so sorry I missed it. Now, it's not recorded in the words, so I'm taking some liberty to think that. But I have to imagine that in their private time, they probably had a lot of discussions. And it doesn't surprise me a bit. In fact, it probably would have to be that way, that they would have to have some time with Jesus alone to say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I missed it there. And Jesus said, hey, guys, I love you, man. I love you. Hang with me. We're going to get this thing yet. Okay, we're going to get this thing yet. So they didn't. They didn't give up. They were there. And, and, but the point is, they had to be teachable. And they had to be willing to let God change and mold their lives. And the point for us today, then, is that we also have to be teachable. If we're going to recover from our spiritual misses, our spiritual oversights, then we also have to be teachable. And we have to know, Lord, I missed it. I'm sorry. And when we say we're sorry, what is he there to do? He's there to pick you up. And he's there to put you back in his lap. And he's there to give you a hug and say, come on, brother. Come on, let's do this again. Let's get on the boat. And let's get on this thing. And let's get going. Because we've got things we have to get done. Amen. There's a few things that I want to point out today that we can learn from this event in Jesus' life. Number one, Jesus knew that his time was short. And time is always of the essence when it comes to honoring Christ. See, this was a day or two days before his death. This was before he was going to be crucified. And this was just a few days before he was going to the cross. And he understood the urgency of the hour. Jesus understood the urgency of the hour. He had informed the disciples before this time over and over and over again what was going to happen. He told them what was going to happen at the Passover. He told them he was going to be taken away. He told them, but they didn't get it. They just couldn't get it. In humanity, they just couldn't get it that Jesus was going to die. But Jesus knew, and somehow Mary got it. Somehow she caught it as well, that the time was short, and we have to grasp the moment we have to not let the moment slip by. What does that tell us today? It tells me that Jesus is just as concerned and he expresses the urgency of the upcoming, just like he did up, up for the upcoming days for the, for, the, for the disciples, that he's also expressing the urgency in our lives today. Because, folks, we need to understand that we have no idea what lies tomorrow. You have no idea what your life is tomorrow or even this afternoon or even the next breath that you have. If you're living in a sense of, I don't need to worry about this right now, you're playing in the devil's camp. Please hear my heart. Young people, you're going to die. Sooner than later, young people, old people, you're going to pass on. I'm sorry to say. No, I'm not. I, I can't wait. Actually, don't threaten me with heaven. I can't wait. But the fact of the matter is, we're going to have that moment. We're going to have that reckoning. And either it comes, either it comes with the urgency of the rapture, corporately for the body of Christ, or it comes with my own personal rapture called death. 
I have no idea what tomorrow holds, so therefore I must have that sense of urgency that Jesus had and that same sense of urgency that Mary had. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, it says, Listen, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Fact. We will be changed. Amen. Then Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, on the other side, if it's my own personal uh, rapture and my own death, it says, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment. So we will, we will one day face this ultimate change from our physical man to our spiritual eternal man that will either live with Jesus forever and eternity or, or listen to me, very important here, folks, listen, or we will be separated from him in hell forever. But when that moment comes, you're going one of the two places. So does that give you a little urgency in your life? Does it carry any urgency for you as to I better make sure that my heart is pure before the Lord and I better make sure that I am extravagantly worshiping this God who has my life in his hand and he has my life in his hand to bless? Or if I make a bad choice to destroy. But it's based on my choices. Jesus was giving these men in this room information that applies to us today as well. Because he goes back, and let's read verse 10 and 13, and it says, and in the rebuke, he said, Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured out this perfume, listen, this is very important. When she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached to the world, she, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What Mary did when she poured the, this perfume on my body, she prepared Jesus for her burial. Mary's act of worship, Mary's act of worship was a prophetic act of preparing Jesus for his death and his burial as a sacrifice for our sins. This is really awesome. Listen to this. Our act of worship today is a similar prophetic event, prophetic act, preparing for the return of Jesus as our King and our Redeemer. As, Jesus anoint, as Mary anointed Jesus' body, she was anointing him because he was going to die. And she did it through her worship. When we worship Jesus today, we are anointing him in anticipation of his return that's a prophetic act on our side to say, Jesus, we know you're coming back, and there we're going to then anoint you with our praise and worship as a prophetic act, encouraging, anticipating, getting excited for your return. And if that doesn't bring up something within your spirit, if that doesn't rise up something within your spirit, then maybe he's not coming back for you. Maybe he's not. Maybe, maybe you're going to be on the outside. I don't know. But there has to be some level of recognition of this. This has to put a burning sense in your, in your heart. You have to know that your worship is meaningful to him because it's a prophetic act, act preparing for the return of Jesus, our King and Redeemer. And both acts 
require our absolute, unrestrained, and extravagant sacrificial offering if we're going to honor him in return for the love that we even can't begin to describe in the first place. Wow. The question is, for you and me, are you and I, are we living with that sense of urgency in our lives? Are we offering our love back to Jesus in the same way that Jesus is offering his love to us? When you worship him with your life, not just on Sunday mornings, but when you worship him with with your life, because Mary's act of, of worship wasn't a song. It wasn't singing. It was an act of worship of her obedience. It was an act of worship of her will. Your act of worship extends Monday through Saturday. It doesn't just happen in this building, and then you go out and live the way you want to live and then think you're worshiping God unless you really are. Unless you really are. And if you're really worshiping God, then that's true worship. But if you're out living your life the way you want to live, if you're out being lazy, if you're out doing nothing, if you're out being a slacker, I'm sorry, that's not right. And that's not honoring God. And that's not worshiping Him seven days a week. And that's what He's coming back for. He's coming back for people not on Sunday mornings. He's coming back for people on Monday night and Thursday night and any day throughout the week. You better be worshiping Him with a sense of urgency seven days a week, 24 hours a day. If you want to be there, if you want to be in the rapture, if you want your name written in the book of life, then you better have that unrestrained, extravagant love for Jesus back all the time. There is no exceptions, folks. There are no grace periods. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to come back for you, and if you happen to be doing this, then you're okay, you're in. No, you're not. No, you're not. You have to be living for Christ all the time. All the time. Even if you don't feel like it. That's sacrificial obedience, even when you don't feel like it, even when you want to fall back and do the thing that's going to make me pleased, happy for the moment, and if it's wrong, you better not do it. Why don't you do things, young people? Why does Jesus say don't? Don't hurt yourself. And he's very concerned about that because he knows that if you're doing things willfully and he happens to come back at that moment in time, I'm sorry, Now, here's the deal. Jesus loves us so much that he will be with us in hard times. I'm not making this an act. I'm not making this salvation of works. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not making this salvation of works. I'm making this salvation of God's grace. But God's grace doesn't stop at forgiveness. God's God's grace goes all the way to uh, repentance and change of lifestyle. So now I'm doing things because I love him. Mary anointed him with this ointment because she loved him. Because she loved him. That's why we do things for Jesus. Because we love him. True love reflected back to God is worth everything we have. We've spoken in the past weeks about God's love is is wasted on us if we don't reflect it back to him. And, And God's love is for everyone without exception. Without exception, no matter what we've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter what you have, God loves you. That is a given fact, and we can never argue with that. We can never argue with that. And it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you unconditionally. 
And what's so amazing about this love is he gave it to the point of extravagance. He just didn't die and prove his love to those that would ultimately accept him. No, he gave up his life for the man and woman that rejects him. He gave up his life for the very man that spit in his face. He gave up his life for the man that plucked the beard from his face, the man that whipped him mercilessly, the man who shoved a crown of thorns in his head, and the man that drove the spikes in his hands and in his feet. Jesus loved that man. He loved that man. He had no remorse in his heart. He had no anger in his heart for that man. No matter what that man did to him, Jesus loved that man. And he died for the man that sits in a church pew today and plays the game of salvation and in some ways hurting him just as bad today as those men did 2,000 years ago. For those that sit in a church across this country and are playing the game of salvation and really don't have a relationship with Jesus, he loves that man. He loves that man. And I've heard it said that the crucifixion didn't really kill Jesus, but it was a broken heart that killed Jesus. See, no man took his life. No man killed him. No man killed him. It wasn't the fact that they beat him mercilessly. It wasn't the fact that his blood was running out of his body. That's not what killed him. What really killed him was the moment that all the sin of our doing came upon his life and the father had to turn his back on him and he said, I can't even look at you because your sin, that's what killed Jesus, a broken heart. A broken heart of all the pain and all the misery that sin brings that's what killed Jesus. And here's the saddest part about it all, folks, is that today many of us are guilty of putting that same heartbreak on Jesus again and again and again because we reject his love. Because we reject his love, because we put a lid on him, because we put a lid on the moving of the Holy Spirit, because we say, no, Father, I'm not going to let you do this. I'm not going to let you go there. I'm going to control you in my little box of religion. You know what that's called? A religious spirit. And when we have religious spirits, God does not live with religious spirits. You might think you're the most holy man in the world. You might know your Bible. You might come to every church service. You might have been here all your life. But if you put a lid on Christ, you are, you are exercising in the realm of religious spirits. And that is evil and it's wrong. And you will not make heaven if that's what's controlling your life. If we claim his love and yet are unwilling to be shaped and molded by it, if we claim to be his follower and then willfully say or do things and live a life of ill repute and, and think that we can say a simple prayer and, and, and without a true sense of repentance, meaning repentance is so awesome. It means turning around and walking away from the sin I just did. It means I, I sin over here. I say, I'm, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry I sinned. Okay, I stay here. Tomorrow comes. I'm right here by the same sin. I, I do it again. Father, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jesus. I just sinned again, but I stay here. I stay here. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. I did it again, but I stay here. You know what that's called? Willful sin. That's saying, I'm sorry, Lord. But you know what he's saying? He said, I'm sorry. What he wants to say, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it again, Jesus. And I walk away. And I go over here. And I leave my sin. And I leave, the, even if I, maybe it's friends. Maybe it's, maybe it's my, my, my habits. Maybe it's my poor choices of not reading the word, whatever it is, my choices. And I walk away from it. And as I walk away, he gives me strength to keep walking. And he gives me strength to keep living in it. Now, that doesn't mean I won't maybe find the sin over here. I probably will. 
because that's the way we are. That's our human flesh. I'll probably find something over here, and then I better walk away over here. That's why Jim Bierce, that, that, that dream you had about that, that anchored ship, we need to be moving too. That's awesome. What you said about a ship that's anchored is of real no value to Christians because an anchored ship isn't moving anywhere. It's not delivering its cargo, is it, Jim? It's sitting there in its own little world, its own little sustenance, not doing anything for anybody. It better be moving. And the same thing me as a Christian. I better be moving. I better be on the Word. I better be listening for God's voice. I better be a teachable man. And I better know that when God is moving, I better move with Him. It's like the Israelites. They moved the camp when the cloud moved by day and the fire moved at night. But when it moved, they moved. See, if God would have moved and they would have stayed in their, in their place, they would have suffered, they would have died, they would have perished. But when God moves, move. When God moves, I better move. God wants all men. God wants all men to be saved. All men. He wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Let me ask you, then, then here's the obvious question. If God really wants all men to be saved... If he does, which I believe he does, do you believe he does? Do you believe that God wants all men to be saved? Then why doesn't he just make us all saved? Why doesn't he just make it simple for all of us and, and go, kazoom, you're all going to heaven because I want you to be saved? He doesn't. He can't do that. Why? Because he gave us free will. He gave us free will. Free will proves love. Love without a choice isn't really love. Love without a choice isn't really love. I must feel God's love. I must understand God's love to the best that I can. And then I must willfully turn it around and give it back to Him out of my own free will if that love is going to be of anything manifested in my life. Love without a choice isn't love. It's just an automated action. And there's a difference between actions and love. God can command my actions, but God cannot command my emotions. He cannot command my love. Otherwise, it wouldn't be free love. It wouldn't be free choice. I wish he would have just made it easy for us and said, I'm going to make you a robot. Wouldn't it be nice if we were all robots? And God just said, you're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. I don't care what you do. You're going to heaven. But you know what? It's no different than when you want love from your spouse. You want her to say it because she means it. Because she, because you're not forcing her. You don't have her down in the headlock saying, tell me you love me. Tell me you love me. It doesn't work that way. Because it's not free love then. She's doing it because she's going to pass out. And see, and God's not going to force us. He's not going to force your love, folks. It's your free choice. It's your free will. And that's the call that's been given to this church over the past few weeks. He's saying, are you going to love me? Are you going to follow me? Or are you going to play your game of religious spirits? It's really that simple. It's really that easy. It really is. This is not a hard word, folks. This is not a, hard, this is not a word of rebuke. This is a word of, word of encouragement. It's so easy when we just do it. It's so easy 
when we just do it. Love often expresses itself in self-sacrifice with little thought of self. Love often expresses itself in self-sacrifice with little thought for self. Christy, would you bring my water, please? If an offering is to be meaningful, then it must cost us something. Thank you. If an offering is going to be meaningful, it must cost us something. It must be done out of our own free will. Otherwise, it's not meaningful. Otherwise, it's really not an offering. Otherwise, it's a commandment or it's, a, it's, it's something taken from me. But, but worship, worship always involves sacrifice. Worship always involves sacrifice. I'm not talking about just a singing worship on Sunday mornings because sometimes it's not a sacrifice to worship God on Sunday morning. Sometimes it's just a joy and pleasure and we just love it. But worship every day of the week requires sacrifice because worship isn't just singing. Worship is a sacrifice of money, a sacrifice of time or pride or all three. It's a worship. When I, act, when I live a life of worship, I'm sacrificing myself and it requires everything we have. Everything. You, aren't, you can't do it partially. You can't do it partially. Just like Jesus didn't give his life partially. Jesus gave his life fully to the utmost for us. Extravagant death for us. For all of us. And he requires that of us as well. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Wow. See, in the situation that we were just reading about, about Mary, the disciples were really more concerned about themselves than true worship. They wanted to be great in the kingdom of God. And there were examples, there were times when they would say, who's going to sit at your right hand, Jesus? Remember that? Remember that when the mother of one of the disciples came and said, which one's going to sit at your right hand? And they're missing a mark. But Mary was achieving greatness already through her devotion to Jesus. She was not concerned for self and what she would get out of it. She was concerned for nothing less than Jesus. And in that, she was already great. The Bible says the first will be last and the last will be first. Whoever thinks of themselves great on this life, if you get to heaven, by the way, you will probably be considered last there. I think we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven and say, who's going to be reigning there? Who's going to be sitting on the throne rooms? It's probably going to be the little gray-haired granny that prays. And probably Billy Graham's going to be down in a realm someplace. And I'm going to be way below Billy Graham. And I'm going to be, you know, and so we're all, if we think we're great, if you think that you are something special to this church, if you think that this church cannot exist without you, you have something else coming. That's a religious spirit. That's a religious spirit. And you know I'm talking about that a lot, aren't I? Because I think we have some cases of religious spirits rising up in this church. 
And that's what's killing this church. That's what's hurt this church for the past 30 years. That's why we've had problems with pastors coming and going in such bad situations because we've had people with religious spirits that want to say, do it my way, pastor. Do it my way. And what they're doing is that they're getting their will in front of God's will because, you know, when a pastor stands before you, he is the authority of God. Just do you understand that? He's not God, but he's the authority of God in that position. And understand, when pastors get before you, they could be wrong. But most of the time, if they're praying and if they're interceding and if they're spending time like we all should be doing this, this month, and that's fasting and praying, you know most of the time a pastor probably has got a good indication of what the Lord's calling them to do. It's a religious spirit that rises up and says, no, do it the way I want to do it. You know what that is? That's taking a church and let's make it a religion that I want. In some ways, that's worshiping more of a facility than a God. Check your spirit as I'm checking mine. Because I hope you understand that when I speak, I need to check my spirit too. I'm asking everyone to check your spirit on that. In Jesus' name. But Mary was achieving greatness already. What Mary did from an observer's perspective was a huge sacrifice. But because she was willing, it was for her a small price to pay, a token of her love. Because of Jesus' tremendous sacrifice, she was willing to make it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus knew that the glory that was coming was going to outweigh the pain, the, the sacrifice that he was making on the cross. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the, th- right hand of the throne of God. Jesus didn't enjoy anything about the cross experience. I'll tell you that right now. There was not one moment of that that he enjoyed. It was a huge sacrifice for him. Yet, he could see the joy set before him. What is that joy? What was that joy that was set before Jesus that allowed him to endure the cross? You know what that joy was? Me and you. He was doing it for me and you to follow his father's heart. That's what his father asked him to do. If Jesus said, Father, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. But Jesus said, No, Father, not my, not my will, but your, thine will be done. So it was us. It was for us that we were the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross. So let me ask you, folks, is there anything too big for us to sacrifice to him? Is there anything in your life that is too big to give to him so that you then could enjoy the cross? with him in eternity because that was a painful experience that was a huge sacrifice for him and let's not let him waste it because if i don't respond to that well then i'm wasting the cross the cross experience for christ it really does come down to me accepting it that makes it worth it for me so as we grasp the enormity of a sacrifice i don't know about you but i cannot help but respond in love and devotion back to him there is no sacrifice too great even though I struggle in it, I'm honest. I'll be honest with you. I struggle in it. I do. And I know you do too. But there is no sacrifice too great that we can give to Christ 
in comparison for what he's done for us. So as we conclude this morning, Jackie, if you would come, please. I want to point out one last thing that happened when Mary opened that alabaster jar of pure and expensive perfume. And that must have been the aroma that came in that place. Now, we've all been in rooms when people have been heavily perfumed, (laughs) and they walk in. You know they're there, don't you? You know they walked in, or you know they walked by, and all of a sudden you get that whiff of aqua velva, baby, or uh, whatever else women wear, I don't even know. But you know that when that jar of expensive perfume, when she opened that jar of perfume, the aroma of praise came into that room. So I want to know, I want you to encourage you this morning, as you open up your alabaster jar, what's the aroma for you? What's the aroma for you? I want to take the next few minutes now, and I want to just come in to praise and worship, and I want you to take your alabaster jar, whatever it is, whatever it is, listen, It's so important that you humble your spirit. It's so important that you come with with, with no pride, folks. No pride. Jesus detests a prideful man. He detests a prideful man. Come humbly before him. Seek his face. Understand what you're doing when this extravagant perfume just flows out of us. And the nice thing about perfume is that it affects other people. When I see the youth worshiping, it affects me. I want to worship with the youth. When I see that happening, it pulls me in. So what happens, what it does, what your expression of of worship is, it does affect other people. It does affect them for the positive or the negative. If you you sit in a prideful demeanor and if you're just going to say, nobody's going to tell me to worship, well, that also is a sweet, that's that's a smelly perfume. It is. It's smelly, all right. But when you come into the when you come into his presence and if you're going to be if you're going to experience what a church of a Pentecostal church does because we are a Pentecostal church, okay? We're not the church across the town. We're not that church and that's nothing wrong with that church. But we're a Pentecostal church. And if we're going to operate in a Pentecostal wor- world, we need to live that way and we need to enter and worship that way and we need to put our pride down and come in and worship Jesus. So stand with me if you will next half an hour or if you want or you're dismissed to leave if you want to leave right now the preaching's done but if you want to praise him come on up let's just praise him and let's spend time with him and let's break our alabaster jar on on the feet of jesus and let's just give him a sacrifice that costs us something this morning